It is surely an awesome thing. I was a moment ago, even as we were singing, feeling pretty small, knowing that around the world, all ethnicities, all languages, all nationalities gather today, tomorrow. And we remind ourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ, of what God has done for us. Across the world, we open God's word, much like we'll do today. And we read the authoritative account of a disciple who was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Who walked with him for several years. The author that God commissioned to write one of the definitive accounts of the life of Jesus is named Matthew. And so I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We will read from Matthew's gospel, his book today. Last week, we, if you were here, we looked a lot at the backstory of Jesus, kind of tracing his family tree, if you will. But is the family tree so filled with promises? Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David. And after giving that historical backstory for the life of Jesus, Matthew dives into the story of the birth of Jesus. And so I want us to read that today. Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 18, looking at these scriptures together. God's word says this, that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Use your imagination this morning. Imagine. Imagine with me that you are at um, a rural diner. And imagine that there are some young guys who are regulars that come in pretty regularly. You know, the kind that are at diners, same time, same booth, same order, multiple times a week. For the sake of this, let's call them Tom and Joe. But young guys here don't think so much of like their student loans and grad school. Their, their path is pretty much mapped out. They're going to kind of work in the father's business, begin a family pretty early on. So I'm talking about a different time, a different place, and they do things. They actually do things quite differently there than 
we do them here, but that's where we are this morning. And so we have Tom and Joe, and Tom doesn't really have any family prospects on the horizon at this time, but Joe's family has arranged with the family of a girl named Mary, and Joe and Mary have been engaged for a little while. As I said, it's a a little bit different time. It's a different time, especially in the fact that if you felt like things might not work out with the engagement, I mean, today the way we would word that is you might break off the engagement or, or break the engagement, but it's a different time, a different place where the engagement there, if you were to end that, there, were, there was, seems to be more commitment involved, and so you actually are, the, the wording would be, you're divorcing, you're breaking it off, you're not continuing with this. That's how much binding their engagements were than ours in particular. So back to Tom and Joe. Joe comes in one day and as only friends know, I mean, Tom can look right in Joe's face and see the fear and devastation in the eyes of his friend. And Joe tells Tom, his best friend, that Mary is pregnant and it isn't by him. And he even hesitates for a moment to, like, unpack all of what Mary said because it's, like, it's the stuff of make-believe. It's the stuff of legends and myths. You know, it's, like, these things didn't happen in their town, Nazareth. Not, not things like this. I mean, he doesn't even want to tell Tom about, you know, the, the Holy Spirit and angels. And it's, it's just better to leave some of those details out that Mary had told him Joe seems to be gripped by fear and he doesn't know exactly what to do. So the question I might ask is what would you say in that moment to Joe? What would be your word of counsel? What would be your word of guidance for what your friend should do? Between Joe and Tom, they work out their plan. Friends, you've probably had those kind of friends that just talking to them immediately kind of sets you off edge a little bit. You're, you're much, much better. Like the world now, you've, you've kind of got a plan. So they've got a plan. Joe doesn't really want Mary hurt, but he can't continue with the marriage. And so Joe decides that he's going to tell Mary the next chance that, you know, that the engagement's off. They can each just kind of move forward with their own lives. And that's the plan. So the next time that Tom and Joe sit across from each other at the next breakfast, Joe's face looks entirely different. He tells Tom that he himself had seen an angel of the Lord. And all those details, yeah, about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, those are involved in in what the angel had told Joe. And particularly, the angel had assured Joe that something miraculous indeed had happened. And Joe's life will never be the same. We do ourselves a great service when we try to live in these stories. When we try to pull them from time and, time and space that's very, very different and try to pull them into our own world and try to fully appreciate people's perspective. I think Matthew is written, especially this first chapter, is written with the perspective of Joseph. You know, the main character of the Bible and the main character of Christmas story will always be, hear this, it'll always be Jesus. But I do think sometimes we can see more things about Jesus as we look through the lens of someone like Joseph. 
who God has chosen to include in this story. And particularly this morning, I, I want you to think, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how Joseph's dilemma helps us see the heart of God. How the dilemma that Joseph faced helps us see better the amazing heart of God. And here's the dilemma. Joseph knows what is right. Joseph knows what the standard is of purity and righteousness and justice. I don't know, maybe his dad talked to him about such things and talked to him about like, this is the way you do things in the right way. Maybe it been ingrained in him as a very young child. But for whatever reason, Joseph knows what is right, what is pure, what is holy. He's called even in verse 19 that we, we read, a just man. So all of what goes down in Matthew 1 is before they come together, before they sleep together, Joseph and Mary. And, and you see that, I mean, Scripture emphasizes that in 23 and 25 as well. And because of that, he believes that the right thing to do is not to move forward with the marriage. In his estimation, the covenant has been broken and there doesn't seem to be really any other path forward. That is the justice side that Joseph is living in. But there's another side of Joseph that we're exposed to and that is the compassionate side. Joseph is a compassionate man and he doesn't want to see Mary hurt. He doesn't want to see her unnecessarily embarrassed. He doesn't want to see her put to shame in any way. And so it says in verse 20, what he'll do is he'll he resolves to like, take care of this matter quietly. He's not just going to make a big fuss about it. He'll take care of things quietly. No need to embarrass someone. No need to just you know, expose her publicly. And I would imagine Joseph is hurt. I would imagine he's confused and frustrated. But he resolves this because he's got this dilemma of how can I, how can I have like, what is right and live my life according to what is right and also be compassionate. Justice and compassion. Righteousness and compassion, sometimes these things collide. Sometimes they present challenges. Sometimes it's hard to find, like, how, how are we going to accomplish justice here and also show compassion? Those things don't always seem to mix really well in our brain. So if I were to tell you that a relative of yours, let's say a niece or a nephew, was being bullied at school, was being targeted at school, and they're li- I mean, it's begin to show up in how they process the world and and there you are, you're a family member and you hurt for them and you see them even changing as they've been targeted and bullied. And, and one day you become aware that the teacher has called in the person that is bullying your nephew, your niece, has called them into the office and, and said, let's call them to the principal's office. And there's been a discussion and the, the principal says, you know what, let's just pretend this never happened. I just feel like I ought to show compassion. This never happened. What would you feel for your niece and your nephew? I would imagine your 2020 morality vision would be so crystal clear on that. You would know, that's not right. I mean, let's, let's show compassion all we can, but there's a side of justice that like, there ought to be consequences for such action and that's what accountability is all about. And you would be right to feel that way. In a life, in a world where we don't obey God, some things seem like they're on opposing sides. So it seems hard to find balance, if there is balance at all, with justice and mercy, with consequences and compassion, with guilt and with grace. It's hard to find how those are going to intersect. And so Joseph, even just in this brief little story we have recorded of him, 
we get a glimpse into the heart of God. It prepares us for what Jesus will do. Jesus will bring together things that we sometimes think are the furthest apart. Jesus will bring together justice and mercy. He will bring together our guilt and his grace. He will bring together consequences with compassion. This is who he is. This is what he came to do. He deals with this, our guilt, while being full of his grace. Joseph had a dilemma and it it just kind of exposes the amazing heart of God. But at the same time, Joseph had to make a decision. What is he going to do? And the decision Joseph makes, the response he has, the, the response of Joseph really serves the mission of God. The response of Joseph serves the mission of God. Surely, Joseph had lived a lot of his life not even thinking about the mission of God. I mean, we, we do that, don't we? I mean, we could, live, we could live days, weeks, months without thinking about God's greater mission. We're naturally pretty self-absorbed people. I mean, even the best of us that are, try to be unselfish when we can. I mean, even, even the best in this room, we, we have this stubborn, selfish streak that kind of thinks me first, and we're not necessarily thinking of the mission of God. Joseph had surely lived a life consumed with his own world, and yet now something much bigger is going on. The appearance of Jesus into his world, even as an unborn child, has complicated things for Joseph. I just want to tell you, Jesus regularly complicates things. He regularly takes things that are like you're just kind of moving on in life and things are just rolling along and then, and then things get difficult. Things get uncertain. Joseph's life is further complicated by this dream he has with an angel speaking to him and the angel's first words are, Joseph? And then he calls him something. He says, you are a son of David. It's more than just trying to pinpoint some ancestry. When David had a a son, it was significant. David's descendants mattered. And so Joseph gets gets a word from the Lord. Joseph, son of David, you don't have to be afraid. There's something going on here. God is at work. There's a greater plan. And when God acts, it does prompt a decision. When God chooses to interrupt your life or when God chooses maybe even you're, you're sensing like, God, it's just complicated my life. Things that used to be so simple, now they're difficult because I'm having to take Jesus into the mix and it, I, I'd rather just kind of live my life. But, but it always demands a response, doesn't it, when God takes the initiative? Will we believe? Or will we live a life of unbelief? Will we obey? Or will we say, God, I think I'm going to do things my own way. Will we respond, respond in loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? Or, or will we choose to love ourselves and live for ourselves? Well, based on the promise of God that this truly was from the Holy Spirit, Joseph makes a decision. He moves forward. He takes Mary to be his wife. It just dawned on me this week. I mean, even by Joseph making that decision of faith and love and devotion to the Lord, he's actually taking the shame that Mary likely would have grown up experiencing in Nazareth. He's taking that shame and he's, he's merging that shame with his own life. The questions, maybe the snide comments, 
the whisper campaign always in the background of like, what, what happened there? We're not so sure. Joseph takes that on himself. Out of obedience to the Lord. Out of love for Mary. The earthly father of Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the heart of our heavenly father. He's going to willingly take on a life he never expected. He'll fill a one-in-a-kind role where he will care for the Son of God. In his home will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Savior. Joseph plays an important role, but again, the centerpiece of this story is not Joseph and marriage, Jesus. But Joseph has this assignment. He's given an assignment by the angel. And this assignment is... Joseph, you're going to be the one who pronounces the name. You're the one that's going to give the name to the Son of God. And this is the name that you are going to give him. You're going to call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, the word would be Yeshua or Joshua. The name Joshua takes us like back in time when God's people had come out of Egypt and and come out of slavery, and they were going into the promised land, and they had a new leader who was the captain of the Lord's army, and his name was Joshua. And so the angel reaches back and takes that name and says, this is what you're going to name the Son of God, the child that's been conceived from the Holy Spirit that is inside Mary. You're going to name him Jesus. You're going to name him Joshua. You're going to name him Savior. Because God will save his people. I would imagine Joseph might have had a few question marks about, like, what is this about God will save his people? Like, isn't that what the law is all about? I mean, isn't that what the temple's all about? Isn't that what priests are, like, trying to work hard to do? Isn't that what the sacrifices are for, God, to, to save people? But now this won't involve a temple and sacrifices and earthly priests. This will involve... A human being, call his name Savior, call his name Jesus, because he will save. And by that time, I think the people of Israel were understanding that the temple and the priest and the sacrifices and the holy days couldn't rescue them. The rescue that they needed seemed like impossible for them to get. Who's going to deal with Rome? Who's going to deal with themselves? Seems absolutely impossible to move this forward. And exactly at that moment, God shows initiative, God moves towards people. The people of Israel had made occasional efforts at like trying to get back to God, trying to get God back in their life and back in their nation, but they never could change their situation permanently. That's because what they needed saving from was not just the Roman Empire, but they needed salvation, Scripture says, from their sin. Interesting, verse 21, the way it highlights this, Call his name Jesus. Because this is what he will do. He will save his people. He'll rescue them. But he will save them particularly from their sin. In the middle of all the joys of Christmas, in the middle of all the plans, I think one of the last things I want to think about when it comes to Christmas is sin. Yet when I open God's word, it seems like embedded in the story that God wants me to know and God wants you to know is the fact that Jesus' saving effort 
involves us looking at what he saves us from, and that particularly is he saves us from our sin. So we, we need to hear exactly what God is saving us from. What is sin? Sin is falling short. It's missing the mark. It's straying. It's a deliberate attitude with actions that follow. I, I remember it, just this week I was listening to a, a pastor, a British pastor, and he was speaking about how sin, and he was describing it helpfully. He was, he was describing how sin has a way of spoiling and spreading and separating. Sin spoils things. If you were here for vacation Bible school back in June, the way we would have said it that is sin messes everything up. It spoils things. It it spoils even even Christmas. So so even Christmas day and the joys that come on Christmas, how much how many people will sit today, tonight, tomorrow in bitterness because of something done to them maybe a decade ago. Sin spoils. It ruins. Even from the littlest kid that begins to look at their presence and think, I want more. I didn't get that. They got that. My toy didn't have, my, my piece of clothing didn't have this on the, on the label. But they got that and they got that, but I don't get that. How deeply will the sin of adultery affect Christmases 2017? How deeply does greed and materialism, not having enough, always needing to get more, always having to make sure we look the part and we, we make sure everybody thinks of us in a certain way, how much will that sin affect Christmas? I mean, sin spoils things. And my goodness, in 2017, we know that sin spreads and contaminates the world. Surely you know this. Surely you've watched the headlines. And we don't get on our high horse and, and say, what, a, what an awful world out there and we're perfect in here. We know at every layer of this world, sin is, has spread and contaminated things. Seems like every news story tells us yet another, another instance where sin is spread and contaminated. And surely sin separates. It's cert- in our own hearts, we know something's not right. Our conscience tells us like things aren't all right. And sin separates us from people that maybe we once loved and cared for deeply. And sin separates us from our relationship with God. This is exactly what sin does. Sin says, I won't live under anyone's rules, not even God. I think I know what's best. I'll break free and do what I want. And that's why it's so remarkable what Jesus comes to save his people from. Jesus comes to save his people from their sin. My guess is, is the fact that Jesus has come to save people from their sin is not actually good news if, if you think, I'm a pretty good person anyway. And I don't really sin, and so I don't need saving, and I don't need a savior. Then, it was just on the screen a moment ago that he's saving people from their sin. Yeah, that, it's probably not as good news to you. Or maybe it's that you, you recognize, hey, I'm not perfect. I have my flaws, but I can take care of it on my own. God and I have this agreement. I'm doing my best. He knows I'm trying. And like for that, who needs Jesus? Because he's come to save people from their sin. Or maybe actually it swings the opposite direction. You say, 
Curtis, the fact that Jesus came to save people from their sin is not so good news to me because I feel like I'm too bad. And even that salvation couldn't be for me. So even hearing you say that just feels like finger wagging and I feel guilt ridden because yet again I know I'm a sinner and there's really no hope. Yeah, if you're in any of those categories of people, I would understand where this would not be good news. But I think for the rest of us that know we need it, that know we can't save ourselves from our own sin, that know that God, and believe that God isn't telling a lie when he expresses how much he loves us, then this does come as good news. That he saves his people from their sin. It's interesting. There's two names attached in Matthew 1. So there's this name of Jesus. But then right on the heels of that, there's this reference to the book of Isaiah and says there's another name that Jesus bears as well. And that is the name Emmanuel. If Jesus kind of tells us what the Son of God did, Emmanuel says this is how he does it. It is God with us. You can do more digging on this reference of Emmanuel. It comes from Isaiah 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Maybe over the Christmas holidays, this would be a good place to read and just think about like what, what was going on back then that the angel pulls that, says his name's Emmanuel, call him Emmanuel. That's an ancient story in Isaiah 7 where God's people look like they're going to be destroyed and just at the right moment, God saves his people. But this name, this name, God with us, God coming to his people. God not just helping from a distance. Not God, not like the, oh, the person that would drive a tow truck that would just like take you to the mechanic and they'll get you back on, your ro- on the road and on your way and glad to help, but not necessarily present with you. But God saving his people by coming to them. When you're lonely, when you're in need, when when you're fearful, there's nothing like a person present. That's exactly what God does. He comes to be with us. Call his name Emmanuel. Because God will be with his people. Jesus, who is God, a very God, lives a perfect life with us, with humanity. Jesus, who is God of very God, experiences pain and experiences the hurts and experiences disease and watches people that he loves pass away. He he tastes death. He sees it, God, with us, not from a distance, but God up close and personal. Did you know when Jesus called the disciples... When he called the disciples, Mark says it this way, he called the disciples first to just be with him. Well, that's what Emmanuel does, God with us. And people always be around Jesus all the time. He doesn't just kind of hover over earth on a cloud, but he comes down to earth and he's present and he eats with people. Peter is with Jesus. John knows of the love of Jesus so much that he could say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. He writes even in John 13 that Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the end. God with us. God 
with us. Jesus, who is God of very God, receives insults and endures injustices, not just from some like pipsqueak running their mouth at him from a distance, but he, he experiences it personally. He hears the insults with his own ears and endures the, the crazy trial that sentences him to death. Jesus, who is God, goes to the cross and he doesn't die somewhere in kind of middle earth, but he dies very publicly. He dies with us, doesn't he? Dies with humans watching, with humans mocking. This is God with us, Emmanuel. And when he's buried, he's buried in a tomb just like others would be buried. But the death of Jesus wasn't just with us, it was for us. And Jesus rose again. And it's just amazing to me as I read the stories of the resurrection, the priority of Jesus seems to be, let me find people. And so Mary meets him, and so Peter does, and so does John, and so does Thomas, and so do all the other disciples. What is it that matters to Jesus even after he's risen from the dead? It's to be with his people again. Before Jesus goes to his father's right hand. He gives his disciples a commission. He says, you go and make disciples. And you go baptize them. And you go teach them everything I've told you to do. But before he leaves, he says, I, I want to give you a promise. I am with you. I am with you to the end of the age. There's nowhere where you will go on this disciple-making mission, telling others about who I am. There's nowhere you will go where... I'm not going to be present with you. And then Jesus gives the seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit to be present with us. And even today as we meet, where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, I'm present. I'm in your midst. God with us. And someday our faith will be sight. And someday what we only see right now by faith We only believe by knowing and experiencing, yes, our Lord is present with us. Someday, our faith will be sight, and we will see him. And one of the tragedies of the Garden of Eden is that there's now this separation and there's this distance between God and humans. And what is beautiful about the end of Revelation is that is restored. I love the way Revelation talks about that restoration. In Revelation 21, John says, I saw this new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But then I heard this loud voice from the throne saying, behold, and we could just kind of pencil in there. Behold, Emmanuel, behold, the dwelling place of God is forever with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And because of that, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. There won't be mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And behold, the one who is seated on that throne said, I am making all things new. Write these things down. These words are trustworthy and true. What Christmas just opens the door for is for us to understand of God's driving priority to be with his people. His life-changing mission to save his people from their sin, 
so that he could be forever with them. This is the heart of Christmas. So Joseph has a dream, and the angel says, call his name Jesus, and call him Emmanuel, the Savior who is with you, God with you. This is the promise that I think sustained his faith. This is the promise that has sustained many other Christians as well, that God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And this is the hope. This is the hope. This is my desire for all those that have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, is that you would know that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can, and you will be saved, because God is with us. Can I ask you to bow your head? So we just take a moment and reflect on our Lord not saving us from a distance, but close. So we praise him for who he is and what he's done. Take a moment in your heart to praise the Lord for his saving rescue and his presence with us this morning. Oh Lord, I thank you While we were still sinners, you loved us. We did not have good deeds to offer you. And you knew that and you came. Just as Joseph had to process your interruption of his life. I pray for those that are processing what it means to be loved by God this morning. I pray that you give them hope and the grace to believe all the promises. I'll fill our hearts with peace and assurance. May we rest in you. We thank you that you are a great God. And through your son, you have accomplished a great salvation. We ask all this in his name. Amen.